to 1M1, the movie music podcast. I'm Alex Steiermark, creator and host of the show. Episode 4 is a conversation that I recently had with Pat Irwin, the composer on such groundbreaking cartoons as Rocco's Modern Life and Pepper Ann, as well as on television shows Nurse Jackie and Bored to Death. Pat was also a member of the B-52s for over 20 years, and I've been a fan of his music for as long as I can remember going all the way back to his early days in New York's downtown no-wave scene. The music that Pat writes is quirky, offbeat, and incredibly joyous. He's also one of the nicest guys around, and I'm grateful to him for taking time out from working on the upcoming Rocco's Modern Life movie to speak with us. I have a feeling you'll really enjoy what he had to say. Pat Irwin, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. We've known each other a long time. I'm one of your biggest fans, I think, it's safe to say. Um, going all the way back to the music that you were first doing in New York, it's part of the no-wave scene, which I you know, still think is so important and um, foundational, really. Working with Lydia Lunch and Eight-Eyed Spy, the Ray Beats, and for almost 20 years or more with B-52s. That's right. All really innovators. Uh, in, in their scenes. And the thing that always struck me, going all the way back to Eight-Eyed Spy, is your amazing sort of vision as an orchestrator, playing with different instrument sounds. You want to talk a little bit about your background and how you, where you came from, you, your training, and, uh, and I'd be very curious to see how that all led eventually to you doing film scores. You know, it wasn't uh, a direct path. I, I had took clarinet lessons as a, as a kid with a very formidable teacher from the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. And, you know, I still love that instrument. But, you know, I didn't have any sort of formal classical training. It was more just wanting to be in a rock and roll band. And for some reason, you know, for I, I think it goes hand in hand with being a fan of movies and movie soundtracks and a fan of rock and roll like you know the beatles of course those phenomenally innovative records which we're still listening to and still thinking about but at the same time there were movies were aside from you know great indie films five easy pieces, uh, whatever. The whole idea of what a film score could be was changing when I was becoming a movie fan. And, you know, I was seeing movies that... Easy Rider, for instance, uh, or at the same time, James Bond movies, where, you know, like the sound of a rock guitar would be integrated into an orchestral score. I just sort of took that for granted, you know, and, and... decided that's what I want to do. I love that sound. And and movies like, um, I don't know, the, the Spaghetti Western movies, and the, you know, those phenomenal Ennio Morricone scores, they just touched me and never left. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you start actually writing film music? What, what, what was the process, the, the transition? You know, it goes hand in hand with what, what you first mentioned about... Uh, you, you said the no wave period. Um, you know, I, 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 there was so much creativity in the air, uh, and, and filmmaking and 
dance, rock and roll. It was all being shown in the same place. Nan Golden would show her photographs and put up a soundtrack to her of, of her favorite music. And Philip Glass would perform in a club the next night, the same club. And the Ray Beats would be in the same the club the, with DNA or Glenn Branca. And filmmakers were in the air. You know, Jim Jarmusch uh, was starting to make his films. But there was also performance art, and I was close friends with a, a performance artist named Julia Hayward, and I did some music with for some of her video experiments. And I, I performed my own music at the dance theater workshop, and there was a great critic uh, named Robert Palmer who came to see my performance, and he wrote a review in the New York Times which was then read by a producer from Turner Broadcasting who asked me if I would score a documentary. And I said, of course. Hmm. And that's, that was in the, in the late 70s, and that's kind of how I started. Wow, I didn't know that. And, yeah. and what, was the, what was the film? Um, there were three or four done by Turner Broadcasting. It might have been more like the early 80s, now that I think mm -hmm. about it. Um, uh, they were done, produced in conjunction with the United Nations environmental documentaries. Uh, one was called The Day of Five Billion, you know, about population growth. I've forgotten the names of them, but mm -hmm. they were wonderful experiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I did a uh, Jacques Cousteau documentary as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I know that you wrote some music for a, what I think is a seminal uh, film, Betty Gordon's oh, Variety. Yeah. Um, are a mutual friend of ours, right. I, I guess I should disclose, but um, really amazing. Um, one of the things that I'm really str struck by, too, is the, your versatility as a, as, a, as a musician, first of all. You play a lot of different instruments, and as a composer, and you're probably uh, best known for, maybe, for your music for Rocco's Modern Life, which is just massively... Uh, innovative and original and uh, just taking this ensemble of mu live musicians and creating this in extraordinary music. Uh, every time I listen to it, uh, I hear something new and I'm just always struck by how just fresh it is. Um, you want to talk about your time with Rocco's Modern Life and, and you mentioned that there's going to be a new film television yeah. special I'm working on that right now as a matter of fact there's an animatic last night I was at a, at a at a concert and Rocco's Modern Life came up and you know that little cartoon touched a lot of people and it was a thrilling experience it was what I thought making records was going to be like I always thought oh god how make records and you do them all the time and you'll make another record and that didn't turn out quite the way I thought it would. But writing a new score every five to ten days for a cartoon, you know, with brutal deadlines for just a, a, a core group of musicians, it was a challenge that uh, I'll never... And a thrill. It was a thrill ride. It's like being in an engine. I was listening to a, a couple of your other podcasts and and thinking how 
different the music from Rocco's Modern Life is from the other. You know, that that music is not, doesn't fit comfortably under the, it's not like a soft pillow. You know, it's chaos. It's manic energy. straight angles in the in the in the drawings for that cartoon dialogue overlaps but it still has a life you know it 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 it, it, it and going back to revisit the, the music now I'm, I'm quite frankly it's a new sensation I'm, I, 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 I can't believe I did it hmm. it's a, and I don't mean that in a congratulatory way it's more like I am having to revisit that energy, which was not the same, you know, it's 20 years ago. Yeah. And, 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 you, and how many years were you working on it? Five. Five. And, and was it original? Uh, did each episode require new music? Yes. But that was done out of naivete. I, I, I did use, reuse themes and beats and and whatnot, you know, like a surf manic surf hysteria for 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 some kind of action or trauma, um, and I you know kind of a amped up energy high energy jazz kind of sound for other situations, but I didn't recycle themes the way I could have and should have. I should have had a library. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I and I, but I didn't, and I think that's maybe what gave it some of its life. It's like you don't really hear the same piece of music ever twice. No, I mean, when when I listen, I mean, you know, I've watched a lot of the episodes, probably not every single one yeah. of them, but but um, I like when I listen to the music there, I just try to imagine what it would have been like to Im- plunge into the kind of manic frenetic energy that you're describing for five years like Ugh. every you know week coming like just living the chaos of what's going on probably on screen and and you know your commitment to this this idea of just making yourself come up with new music and new performances and and, and frankly probably having to motivate the performers every time well Actually, yes, but the performers made me look like a million bucks every time. The drummer, Kevin Norton, bass player Dave Hofstra, these guys just were ready to go. I, I, and always gave a little more than I even could have imagined in their own ways. And uh, all, all the musicians really did. And... Um, that that made it work. You know, I looked forward to their energy, and you know, you all. One thing that makes me laugh when I look think back about it, I would finish an episode and always think, "Wow, that was a that was really fun. That was that was a good one. That really was the best one." And then over time, you listen back, 
I'll revisit something and it's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that one, oh, I don't know. I, 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 I should have gone for another take. You know, I would have gotten a better, you know, tighter performance. But basically, the, those musicians were all stronger readers. They all brought me up to their level. They, they were on a really high level. What was the instrumentation, uh, typically? How many musicians did you work with? It would be a core group of five, and then it could expand up to ten, let's say. Um, the core was just a basic uh, bass, drums, percussion, guitar. I doubled on organ. Um, trombone was mostly Art Barron, who was, I still find one of the thrilling musicians. He was with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Um, Rob DuBellis was a woodwind doubler, is a woodwind doubler. Um, so got a lot of mileage out of, you know, the fact that he could play flute, saxophone, clarinet, bass clarinet. And then we would have maybe, if we needed an accordion, or Tony Trishka played banjo on oh, some. Yeah. Um, we brought in a bagpipe player for another. I just ran into uh, you know, so it would be augmented by different different players, but it always was over this core kind of quartet, quintet kind of thing. back to the very initial conversations that you would have had with the creator, Joe Murray, about what the musical approach would be? You know, it was really exciting because, you know, we talked about classic Warner Brothers cartoons, um, cartoons that, that were based around a live band sound, um, and I remember, you know, the, the theme to the Flintstones and the Jetsons and Top Cat and other cartoons from when I was a kid. And 
how they would just sweep me away. And he just, I remember he used the word, you know, he talked about colors and fruity colors. And I love that. And I, he also, he brought me into the drawing um, just by his enthusiasm for the drawing. I think that was what he could talk about. And I love that. You know, it's the same on a film when you, you don't really necessarily, speaking for myself, I don't really want a finely tuned musical discussion. It can just be about the energy or the its sadness or the, the, the joy um, or the density of the sound. He wanted constant density chaos. That's, that's what he was looking for. Just, but I think he, he was also happy to get some emotions that were a little more shaded. And he would also throw out really cool ideas that might have not been obvious, you know, but he would just say, how about a blues? <laughs> Good idea. Mm -hmm. And he would fax me the spotting notes, very detailed, very, very detailed. We would ha wouldn't have spotting sessions. He would fax, send by fax these really detailed He himself. Notes. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And then we developed, over the years, a, a, a bit of a shorthand, like, mm -hmm. You know, I remember, for instance, climb the ladder of, a of anxiety, you know, things that aren't, you know, not real film scoring terms, but yeah, yeah. that I would get yeah. pretty quickly. seems like the the process by which you as the composer have to identify with the character in this case Rocco is going to be a lot different than identifying with Robert De Niro maybe yeah. not but but another like it's not a it's not a human being it's not a it's a it's this weird character what's that like like how do you get your head and uh, wrapped around that you know that's a really good question I I, I don't, I, you know, he, Rocco's just got like this heart of gold and he's, but he's never quite in control of the events swirling around him and his friends, Heifer and Filbert. I didn't really necessarily think about the character. It was more like the situations they were immersed in. Like, and they would be these 
tight little stories that would kind of spin out of control sometime. You know, but he he's he's got a he's got a moral compass and 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 uh they're not total slackers, but that's kind of what what the spirit is, you know, these I mean, we're talking about a wallaby here. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, sometimes when the, uh, not so much anymore, but like a film director would say, well, send me a little something what you're working on. And I would send some music from this cartoon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took me years to figure out that just because it, it just is not the same as like a film score and it wasn't it you know you see and also sometimes you might see a, a hollywood animated film even and and just the way you way, way i would zero in and you know the, the different terminology I, I would mickey mouse something or trap something um you really wouldn't want to do that on a movie you know but for me it would be like a fun thing to do you know to, to like literally walk him up the stairs I'm 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 thinking right now of a of a scene I was working on this morning where they're going watching an old VHS per that mm-hmm. and 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 the the joke is the VHS kind of spits out but it comes out of the 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 tape machine falls onto the ground flips over and then the tape comes out you know it's <laughs> one too many events and um I had you know the challenge is you know, I've kind of got the, the sadness of this kind of changing technology going. But I decided to go back and hit all those events just because it's, I can, you mm-hmm. know, it's fun, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so I didn't really zero in on a character as much as like the swirling madness of, of, the, of, the, of the cartoon itself, if you know what I mean. I do. I mean, I've always felt like the the... the key to writing good music for comedies for example is is not to try to write funny music but to actually take the situation seriously yeah and it's the incongruity of what's going on as far as the character's worldview that's con- is concerned that makes it funny right and 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 it it seems oh it seems to be usually more effective to try to score it as like a real dramatic situation. Oh yeah, and that makes it funny to usually, you know, like really exaggerating the fact that there's nothing to eat, and that, that like <laughs> the characters will open up the refrigerator. There's nothing there, you know. I, I really had fun with that, you know. And for instance, moments like that. Yeah, yeah. I I put your music in in the you know the same class as far as I'm concerned with Raymond Scott and Escavel. Oh, thanks. I mean. You know this sonic palette, this like energy, this inventiveness. Are you were you influenced by those guys? Or? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was thinking, you know, and so much of it came from also the, you know, you know, for instance, the seeing a band like the Microscopic Septet or or, you know, in a nightclub or playing a bill with John Zorn or, you know, it's not only the the, the great. You know, you know Raymond Scott, who you mentioned. You know, I think Hal Wilner had put out a a, a a a tribute record to Raymond Scott. It was just sort of in the air, and those Escavel records that were being released, re-released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those hi-fi, those swinging hi-fi recordings. Um, 
It's definitely influenced by them. Yeah, which oddly enough, like conversations I've had with people, still, a lot of people are still not aware of some of this music, which um, it's definitely due for rediscovery, probably. Totally. Um, talk a little bit about how the theme song, the title track came to be for Rocco. Uh, well, there was uh, the original version. I didn't do the very first year or I th- about a year. But, you know, I was playing in the B-52s, and um, we decided to do, you know, use the voices. And Kate and Fred sang it. You know, I've got overlapping phrases of, uh, you know, the rhythm section might do something for four bars or five bars with with the guitar playing four bars. You know, it's just sort of chaotic and... Fred and Kate kind of took the vocal uh, direction from the original vocal, which is a little bit more droll and electronic, but really effective. I, I love it. And we just went in the recording studio down in Soho, uh, Sorcerer, and knocked it out. They did a great job. They did a great job. Mm-hmm. They went on to do, you know, well, you know, the P-52s. I mean, you can't really go wrong. Rocco's modern life. Rocco's modern life. Working with a smaller ensemble on a TV series, either it's Rocco or, of course, more recently you've been working on, you worked on Nurse Jackie and Bored to Death. And um, what is the process in terms of how you manage your resources, how you, 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 you budget and how you schedule and how you, how you like to work that way? Because I'm assuming a lot of it falls on you, right? Yes. Yeah, so what, what is like what do you try to zero in on and identify as like the main things that you need to concern yourself with at the outset? I wanted to get a core group of musicians together who could look at my music and over a period of time not be surprised uh, by something that would, would would might might not come up in a regular recording session. So I wanted to establish a vocabulary with the musicians. But I also wanted to make it so that the peop- the creative people, the producers, like on Bored to Death, for instance, I just wanted to make it work for them. I wanted to take it to a different level for them, like so that there would be, so that it was a real live sound, a real live core band sound. And um, for the most part, I was able I was able to do it. You know, on a television project, the 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 deadlines can be a little uh, imposing you know so I, I i would try to give sketches using real instruments um i would try to make it so that my temp tracks i would provide temp tracks as much as i could so the i would try to you know learning from rocco i would create a library 
up front um, that we could draw on. Some of it just didn't work, but some of it did. Uh, and I just wanted to make the showrunners comfortable, primarily. I didn't, I wanted to be the person that w it was okay to talk to on the phone mm -hmm. when, when, uh, when, uh, when two minutes had to be cut out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't want it to be like, what are you doing? It was like, okay, let's, let's make this work. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's a challenge, but and it's a challenge I want to get better at because for a long time I, I didn't understand the other parts of making a movie as much. Or, you know, I didn't really understand all the moving parts. So when I set out, I try to f focus in on a sound. And uh, maybe in the case of a recent showrunner, the one with Nurse Jackie, maybe, maybe he... He, he was into musical styles, but he had justifiably so kind of very interesting uh, sonic tastes, you know, didn't like certain sounds and tones and could be very specific. And I found that really challenging and wonderful to, to, um, to work with. But I try to, try to get it cleared up pretty, pretty early in on the process, otherwise... And you do that by taking their initial thoughts and then providing them with like examples musically yeah. that you think are what they're talking about and seeing how they respond to that. And I mm -hmm. guess that's the beginning of a dialogue back and forth of right. what's working and what's not working. Yeah. And I try to get that dialogue going as early as possible because in, the, in my experience in the last couple of television shows I've worked on, there isn't much time for dialogue later. The showrunners are... You know, in many cases, they might be shooting an episode, editing another episode, writing another one, and all at the same time. You know, you might be mm -hmm. working on the third year of something, but they're already moving ahead to the fourth, and it, it's pretty. It's pretty imposing. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think that's what's exciting about it. Also, is like the team of people working at the same time and instead of it being oh there's oh, so many people with opinions about the music it's like great there's a <laughs> lot of you know let's 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 figure this out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um otherwise you know you're in for a long long haul yes it's a it's a very different process from feature films and yeah. that there are a lot more i guess opinions that weigh in and have have some kind of say really right a lot of people i'm not even aware of i'm imagining that you're you're coming up with a overall sort of musical concept but it seems as the show evolves over the course of a season and episodes have their own specific requirements what what's happening like what's how's the music evolving and how does it start to change from what your initial thoughts were at the beginning of the season by the time you get to the end and what is that? What is that process? I think the process is being flexible. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Ames, the creator of, of, of Bored to Death, I remember the first conversation we had, he was talking about being cinematic. Uh, I, I wasn't the original composer on that. The original composer just did a phenomenal job of creating this noir, film noir soundscape with an electric guitar. But when by the time I was starting work on it, 
they wanted to move beyond just the guitar and he was talking about the film North by Northwest was one of the first um, and I was sort of taken aback you know I was like oh I wasn't thinking of of that mm-hmm. you know how what are we going to do here but it was taking the feeling that he got and I realized that the storylines on Dar- um, on Board of Death it went it was going from these smaller little funny whodunits to like real detective stories in a way like real with a real gun even though it's hilarious and uh totally improbable scenarios surreal i it was it was just part part of my job to create kind of a a more cinematic varied palette and yet build on the original kind of sound which was kind of similar vocabulary as to the ray beats also you know that kind of dark guitar instrumental rock and roll kind of sound as well um but i combined it with with um you know as many as six or seven musicians from new music ensembles that play around the city you know and you know like like either bang on a can or mm. or ethel uh, some of the string players mm-hmm. from those groups. Great. I try to get the scripts in advance, but I've also got a collaborative relationship with a music supervisor and a and the music editor, who would give me a heads up, you know, further on down the line. So they, you know, they're working more in close proximity to the editors, and the story stories on some of these television shows aren't as cut and dry. They they might start off as something on paper, but once they start to shoot it, I mean, it's the same in the film. It becomes sometimes see something else. I would have to make those kind of adjustments with the, with the music as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that I would rule out using a library. You know, I would create a library that I could draw on, mm-hmm. but I had to be flexible enough to step outside the library. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, under pretty 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 fast turnarounds, mm-hmm. time turnarounds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a day or afternoon sometimes. You have done a bunch of features. Um, one filmmaker that you've worked with is Stacy Cochran. Well, Stacy was the first real feature filmmaker that I ever worked with, mm-hmm. and I treasure treasure it, and I love that movie. And a lot of her direction, which was, you know, not exactly um, something that I fully understood at times, but I came to treasure over the year. You know, as I would reflect on it. You know, she would, the very first cues, sketches that I gave her for my new gun just didn't work. They weren't working for her. I didn't understand her sense of humor. 
but she was very patient and she stuck with me and I did something that I've heard other filmmakers that you've interviewed do. I, I, I pulled together music from my personal collection and put it on a tape. I didn't want to give her too much, but I sent it to her and I'll, mixed it in with some things that I had written and, I, and things that I did specifically. And I remember she listened to a bunch of things and then she came to... Uh, one piece that I had done with a vibraphone and a pedal steel and um, percussion, and she said, that could go in the movie. <laughs> that belongs in the movie. I don't know where. I think there was a cello on it as well. Mm. I'm not so sure where, but it could go in the movie, and I love that. Mm. You know, And I began to see the music as you know, more of a fabric of something bigger. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a great experience. Again, a small core of musicians. Doug Dougie Baum played drums. He was in the Lounge Lizards, I think. He had played drums on the Lydia Lunch record. Mm-hmm. Um, Sebastian Steinberg played bass. He was in Soul Coughing. Um, a couple guys from Modesky and Martin Wood were were in it in the band. Um, Bill Ware played vibes. That was a great band. It was a fun band. And we did it in a day or two, mm-hmm. and then I overdubbed things. spent time out in LA working I know you were out there for extended periods of time but here we are we're in your studio in Long Island City you work with these musicians who are just really f- iconic you know musicians in New York to, to what extent does actually doing all your work in New York inform your sensibility you think you know it's 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 my home I I you know, I don't. I haven't done a lot, any real sort of mainstream uh, film scoring. <clears throat> it's all these sort of left of center, and I, I think the music that I've done is very much informed by the the live music scene that you were discussing when you were, um, we first started. You know, the late '70s. It's just a part of what I, 
who I am, you know, as a part of what I do. When I moved to New York, all I wanted to do was play Max's Kansas City or CBGB's. You know, that's really all I, all I wanted to do. And a lot of, I realize now, a lot of the people I work with are people that I met during that, those years who are still professional musicians. Um, but in New York, you know, like I mentioned to you, like yesterday, I visited the Louis Armstrong House, which is one of the more life-affirming places on the planet. You're riding on, you ride on the seven train, and it's, the diversity on the train in itself is, is a thrill. You're not having a, you know, there's a sort of an unwritten protocol about riding on the train. You don't really talk, or, you know, but you're polite, you know, you respect, for the most part, given the number of people, I think it works really well. You respect the space, and, but, you know, you're bumping up against cultures and, and, different races and religions and passing neighborhoods that will have, you know, Greek Orthodox church next to a auto shop. You know, you're seeing it right there, you know, body shop and then a, a, a restaurant from El Salvador and then uh, a tango bar. And, you know, a lot of that creeps into my music, I think. Um, you know, pulling, and it works well for film and television, you know, pulling you know, pulling in different elements from here and there. It's a street energy uh, that I, I'm influenced by. And and not that that doesn't exist in L.A., but, you know, it's just not the same. I like L.A., um, and I had a place there, but New York's my home, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah. I love it. You know, uh, I, I see things on a daily basis that just take me out of my comfort zone. It also reaffirms why I think the place is great. You know, it's what's thrilling about where we live. Um, and, I, and I feel like, you know, in Long Island City, in New York in general, you know, you get that. The Louis Armstrong house, I mean, my goodness. And then what was so cool, you know, he's, he's talking about music that he's listening to, and he's talking about, oh, there's symphonic music, there's a... He's talking about the Beatles. He's talking about, you know, he was a voracious taper. He taped everything. And that's part of the fun things about the tour. You know, the, the guide will push the button and it's Louis Armstrong's voice will come out. And you're, you know, you're talking about this guy changed our lives forever. New, you, know, you know, from New Orleans but up to New York. It's joyful and... I don't know. They, New York just informs, it's got an energy that informs what I do. You know, I, I would love to work on more projects based in L.A., well, but it is what it is. You alluded to uh, some of the research there, and how, how big a part of your process generally is that, the research, before you even start writing? What, what do you, how do you work with that? I think it's more than I let on. Mm-hmm. Um, on Rocco's Modern Life, I went, for instance, you know, I would go back. I, once I, I hit on this sound that I was going for, I went back and listened to more smaller jazz ensemble playing than I, than I knew, knew. You know, the, some of the Count Basie smaller band recordings, the Duke Ellington smaller band recordings. And I... Just because that's a vocabulary that I wasn't all that 
it wasn't in my bones. I didn't know it that well. So I try to familiarize myself with, with as many of those recordings as possible, as well as the Esquivel and maybe some of that more of the, those hi-fi type recordings that, that were done in the 60s. And then I forget about them. <laughs> showrunner on Nurse Jackie and his the, the show a- after that, Feed the Beast, he took the initiative to create playlists to, to draw on and do research. That came in really handy, particularly when things got tight. And I remember, you know, he had a, a Katie Lang recording with a, a, ch- a cello motif. And and I knew that I needed something for for a specific scene, and I drew on that that type of reference. But I knew that he liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and it wasn't just a cavalier opinion. It was something that he felt he really wanted. He, first of all, he took the time to communicate with me about it. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like a conversation, but just this is something that I think might work I'm hearing it 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 goes back to what I said about Stacy Mm -hmm. this could belong in my film or my show I don't know where Mm -hmm. but it's the type of feel that I'm hearing Mm -hmm. and um, try to honor that as much as possible Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually it brings up an interesting thing on so on these shows like Nurse Jackie or Bored to Death are your your conversations are more often with the showrunner Yes. than various directors or right. that you'd hardly ever interact. Unfortunately. Why do you feel unfo- that it's unfortunate? Um, well, I mean, I think it's just the way the process works. The directors, they, the, the editors put together and the directors put together a director cut and they often use some of the music, but I'm, I'm not, I don't really get in sometimes you really want to be a part of the shot or the way the camera moves or the director's feeling something. And if I don't have any interaction at all, I, I don't, I really, I I miss that little bit of communication. Um, Mm -hmm. It could be, it might, it might be unnecessary, but I miss it. Mm -hmm. You know, why they would frame a shot a certain way, you know, and I love when the music feels like it's a part of that shot. Uh, 
I don't know. I just I I would love to be able to communicate more with the directors. Mm. You know, talk about that a little bit. The the idea that you want the music to be part of the shot. What is it that you mean? What what are you trying to accomplish? Well, <clears throat> you know, it's just part of the fabric of a story. That the 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 way a camera moves to insinuate the feeling, instead of like talking about what a character might be saying. Um, for instance, in my new gun, there's a there's a a shot in the beginning of the film that's from impossibly far away. Um, it's a long distance shot, and I supposedly there's a more technical term for it. But she's eavesdropping in on a conversation. But instead of coming in close up, she never gets close, and it's this kind of a distance. Um, I still get goosebumps when I think about that. And I feel like if the music is part of the the distance between the the viewer, you know, and the to create, you know, the character, the action, you know, sometimes you want to be close and sometimes you want to be far away and the cameras can pull you in. It happens on animation also all the time when the camera cameras that you get closer. If I can create like let's say part of that intensity with it and it, it, it it's a thrill you know part of that dynamic um, and I try to be aware of it you know it's not just quick cutting but the way the camera is moving um, not just psychological dialogue that I've got to score under but shots that are far away as well as close you know I just I love I like to be aware of it with animated episodes are you writing to finished animation or how does it usually work for you are you working with uh you know pencils pencil well right now on Rocco's Modern Life I'm working with something in an animatic Mm -hmm. which is pencil drawings and whatnot and they're doing a very detailed temp score using a lot of the music I had done for the original episode this is a brand new hour-long special or is that what it's going to be it's probably huge I mean, anticipation for that. It, it, it's hair-raising. Some of the tempos we played at, we'll see. Rocco doesn't get any older, does he? Yes, 20 years down the line. They he's, haven't is aged. He, is Rocco 20 years older? Yeah, yeah. They've been out of outer space. Uh-huh. The story is really beautiful, actually, uh-huh. what, what Joe has written. Uh-huh. Um, it's about change We'll see. I mean, I'm at the very beginning, and I'm, I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. I'm at the very beginning of the process. But when we were doing the television show, when the original cartoon, I, was mas- I would be working with finished animation. As, as, the, as, as the years progressed, they would, the schedule would work so that I would get more of a finished cut, and I would create a lot of the sort of effects, if you will, in post. In the beginning, I was working with pencil drawings and old school, you know, I was working with, with storyboards. Um, and I've done that in other shows. You know, variety. It can is, there, be, is there a lot of change that happens in, with, with animation? Yeah, it yeah. can be. Mm-hmm. It depends on the, on, uh, it just depends on the, on the process, I, I, I don't know that, that it's, uh, you know, there's some that are very scripted out and the change is minimal. And some of the shows that I've worked on, they would change. 
they would change quite a bit. But you get used to it. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's going to happen. I mean, and if you're, not, if you're not ready to make a change, then you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong boat. Mm-hmm. So, with, so with the new Rocco's Modern Life, um, have you had, like, had to restart the, collabor- like the conversation? Uh, and sort of, what's that like? Well, I'm being a little proactive about that. And I'm jump-starting the conversation mm-hmm. because I, I just don't want to wait to the last minute. I mean, time is w- a wonderful a- asset, and I just want this to be right. I mean, you want to be able to make mistakes, but I don't want it to be the kind of thing, well, this is what you used to do, just do it. I, I want to have a real conversation about you know, what it means to be... Uh, you, you know, back in these with these characters after they've been in outer space for 20 years, and um, so I've had a couple phone conversations, and they've been really good. The there's a younger uh, director um, whom I haven't worked with before. He's written a song for it that I love, um, and he's a f- he knows the music really well that I did. So I don't know how he does it. So he's <laughs> actually doing some things where he's taken pieces of music that I wrote for the original and kind of put it in, into places that I wouldn't have ordinarily thought of. I'm finding that really exhilarating. Mm. And then hopefully I'll take that back. I'll take that direction and maybe put a little bit of a spin on it. That, but I'm, the reason why I mentioned I'm being proactive is just because I, I don't think I'm as fast as I used to be or... I, I just know how long it takes to, to sometimes get all these musicians into place with schedules, and I want the, mu- the parts to look perfect, and the, I, I don't want there to be any questions about what we're doing. And The thing about that score is just there's a lot of details. You know, the drummer, you know, there would be slash marks, but, you know, I'll, pl- I'll give you some of the cues, and the hits, they come fast and furious. And he, the drummer would get them all. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be able to do that in the movie I, uh, too. I, I, I don't. I want to. I don't want to. I don't want to miss any opportunity to, mm-hmm. to hit something on the right on the head. You don't really get that in a film all the time. You don't really want, you know, like if the character is pushing the elevator button, you don't want the cue to lead up to the elevator button and go dong. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to score a mood. There is a little more distance on the and, and the animation. You know, you're really close to it. Well, it's the, I mean, you know, in, in, in the film world, the term Mickey Mousing something is, is a negative. Right. But it, ref, it refers back to the Disney cartoons of hitting every little visual cue. And if, in film, that's not necessarily seen as a positive, but of course in animation, yeah. it's a different vocabulary, right? Right. I mean, the Carl Stalling arrangements of, the, of I mean, that's the gold standard of, of that kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. and the Tom and Jerry cartoons as well. But the... You know, you, and that's when you're watching the cartoon sometimes with, with younger kids and you hit it, you know, they're, they're really invested in it all. You know, they're with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they're, you know, the, a film like, you know, I mean, a show like Rocco's Modern Life, it wasn't just little kids. It was teenagers and, and that stuff is still, people still watch it. For sure. You know. Yeah. I know a whole group whose entire worldview has been informed by Rocco's modern life. Yeah, a certain, <laughs> I, for better or for worse. 
not a real mainstream show, but it certainly hit a lot of people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, which is kind of thrilling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to make too big of a jump here, but it, it was like when I was playing with the B-52s and we would, you know, I'd been in bands that had played around in Europe and, and around the country and done a lot of shows and had a lot of wonderful fans, but pretty obscure. With the B-52s, all of a sudden, we were going on to another level of music, you know, communicating with music, touching a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's a thrill. Yeah. It, you know, you, you can't talk to a lot of people who haven't heard of the B-52s, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same with Rocco's Modern Life in a way. Like he, he, I was saying last night, I was at a table and somebody, you know, talking about music and a lot of pop music that's in the air. But when Rocco came up, it was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> and that was like, that was something else altogether. That was the real thing. And um, so I'm really honored to be a part of, that, of a couple things over the years that have resonated on a cultural, you know, broad level. Mm. It's kind of, a, kind of a thrill. What you've provided is a gift to so many people. It's, it's really, it's amazing. I'm lucky. Yeah. You know, I'm fortunate. Well, thank you so much. I just love hearing you talk about music. I love listening to your music. So I really appreciate that you were able to do this. Thanks for having me. Wow. What a great, great guy. I could hang out with Pat all day. Well, that was a lot of fun. I appreciate Pat's generosity. Thank you so much. I don't know about you guys, but I can't wait for that Rocco's Modern Life movie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.